Uh, So our passage this morning, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, James is going to give his diagnosis about what's wrong with these people. Uh, And it is the source, really, of all of their troubles. Like last week, at the end of chapter 3, James states explicitly uh, that these people, the, the, the people in these churches need the wisdom that is from above because they clearly lacked it, as they could see in the kind of fractured lives they live. Well, this week, as we start chapter 4, James is going to state exactly why it is that they don't have this wisdom, and in so doing, he's going to trace back the root of all of their problems to one particular issue. Now, if you're listening to Randy read it, you may already have dialed in onto what James's diagnosis is. Um, but I recognize not all of you may have picked that up, but it's also an important question for us to ask. Uh, It is a very important question for us to ask because it is the same issue that we struggle with today that James and these people did 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. You might say, well, how could we possibly have things in common? But we really do, because while the situations and circumstances, the culture may change, the human heart never changes. And so the issues at hand are always relevant. So what was the issue? What is the issue? What is the reason for the fights and quarreling and the sectarianism and the division and all that ails them? Was it racial tensions? Maybe economic disparity? Maybe a differing political vision? All of these items are things that people would point to and do today in our culture. That's what's happening. We are falling apart at the seams because either it's racial or it's economic or it's political. And every one of these elements were in abundance during James's time. Think about it. Racial tensions must have been at an all-time high. After all, they used to be a nice kind of community of ethnic Jews, but that's all changed because of the gospel. It's not just Jews anymore. Now you've got these bacon-eating, non-Moses-loving, former idol worshipers who have come to Jesus Christ, and they're that part of God's chosen people. Wait a minute. God's chosen people used to be the exclusive domain of the Jew. But now it's not just the synagogue. It's now been replaced by this thing called the church, the ecclesia, God's gathering in of all nations and all peoples. Imagine the racial confusion, and we actually see that much through much of the New Testament between now what used to be the Jews and now opened up to everyone. So they had their fair share of racial tensions, and that brought along economic differences as well. True, some of them were wealthy merchants and successful businessmen and a few successful businesswomen, but most were slaves or former slaves, or at, at best, they were indentured servants, most of them uneducated, a few privileged citizens of Rome. Now, I know today it's very common to bemoan economic disparity, and I think it's ironic that it's being done while it's being live-streamed or tweeted or posted on $100 smartphones or now $1,000 smartphones. By first century standards, every single one of us in our society would have been considered the 1% easily. So they had their economic disparity in spades. Also, they had their uh, political tensions at either extreme of the cultural wars. On the one hand, you had the Jewish zealots. And by the way, there were some zealots who were disciples of Jesus. They were those who believed in the national political freedom of the nation of Israel at all costs. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, some scholars believe that uh, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is really wasn't his last name as much as it was a designation of a group he was part of called the Sicarii. Uh, and they basically had a stylist like this. And in large public gatherings, it was a razor sharp stylist would walk up to betrayers or people who betrayed Israel and cooperated with the Romans and basically punctured their throat with a the, with the little stylus and put it away. And there were many of those in that time, two of, a few of which would have been the disciples of Jesus. And you can imagine, on the one hand, they had these zealots, and Jesus all had tax collectors, right? So you could imagine the political differences. But within the church, you had those who were fighting for Ju- Judaism. Yet on the other hand, you had the gentry of Rome, people who were Roman citizens, who were very, or very happy with the status quo and believed in the principle and ideals of Roman culture. So you had all this in the mix. You had this racial, economic, political tensions. It's no wonder things were hard at church. But notice the Bible, James, never lays our problems at at the feet of any one of those issues. He never lays it at the issue of race or economics or politics as if solving one of those would be the key that unlocks all the harmony we're looking for. The Bible never has such a simplistic view of human personality and situations. It is not simplistic at all. It would be too simplistic to say, that's the issue. If we solved it, things would be fine. And so in verse 4, James gets right to it and says it like it is, puts his finger on the problem and says, here's the problem. You all are adulterers. I'll explain that in a little bit if you don't understand why he calls them adulterers. But there it is, literally in black and white. And by calling the people adulterers, James drills home his spiritual diagnosis of the people. Their divided affections between God and the things of this world is tantamount to adultery and is the root cause of all of their division. Now, I'm going to repeat it again, and you might feel like if you've been a part of this series, haven't we heard this section before? But it's such an important part of what James is saying. It's such a huge and significant aspect of James's message that God is one. He's consistent and constant. There is no shadow of variation or change in who he is, and his people ought to reflect that. But the problem was they were divided from center to circumference, and that caused all the problems. And James nails it here. It's a spiritual division. It's spiritual adultery. And that fact that they were divided in their hearts had been seen in their lack of commitment to one another. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 26 to, or 22 to 26. The fact that they were divided internally led to the fact that they were divided externally and discriminated and picked favorites amongst one another. The fact that they were divided in their hearts showed in the fact that they could proclaim a religious system but have none of the works part of their lives as well. So they parsed out their faith from works. The fact that they were divided in their hearts to the things of God revealed itself in the fact that they were divided with the use of their words. On the one hand, they would bless and encourage people, and the other hand, slander them and gossip behind them. They would bless God, James would say, and curse man. That showed their division. The fact that they were divided in their hearts showed in the fact that their divisive wisdom. They had the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom from above. And this division shows in the fights and quarreling and the short-circuit prayer lives that we're going to look at a little bit today. And if you look later on in chapter 4, chapter 5, the fact that they were divided toward the things of God gave them an unusual relationship to the things of this world and the wealth thereof, caused them to boast and to be arrogant, forgetting who gives them all that they need. And so James 
finally calls them to repent and come back to God and to show, give evidence of what actual change looks like. So our 12 verses, what James is going to do is basically make the accusation that they have divided hearts in verses 1 through 5. Then he's going to offer the solution to how to restore, reconcile from having a divided heart in verses 6 through 10, and then give practical evidence of what a changed heart looks like in verse 11 to 12. And we may not get to all that, but we're going to try. So let's look at James and the accusation of a divided heart in verses 1 through 5. Um, it's fitting that chapter 4 begins the way it does because at the end of chapter 3, you recall James is saying what was the driving problem amongst them was jealousy and selfish ambition. So if jealousy and selfish ambition was running amok amongst the people, it's no doubt that he now has to deal with the fallout of that, and that is quarreling and coveting, fighting one another and wanting each other's stuff. And so that's how chapter 4 begins. And he begins it, like he did our last section last week, with a question. There it is. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Race! Those Jews are just too different from us. Gentiles, they're just all messed up. We're just too different. What causes quarrels and fights? Money! They have it, we don't. We want it, they won't give it. Politics, they're in power, we not. We want change, they don't. They didn't say, there's all these things that they would yell out at. But James knows it's not any one of those things. Now, were they contributing factors? Sure. But were they driving factors? No. James answers his own question. Look at the end of verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And because each one of you is losing that war individually in your hearts, war breaks out among you corporately in your lives. Notice that. It's the war beneath the war, James is saying. All the things on the surface is what gets the attention. But what causes the problem is not the thing on the surface, but the war that's beneath the war. In other words, he says, look, within each one of us, there is something going on inside way before there's something going outside of us. And that's what James is drawing their attention to. Notice verses 2 and 3. James is going to give us two principles about for fighting this war against our own desires. Principle number one is this. Not all desires should be pursued. Not all desires should be pursued. And principle number two is this. Not all prayers should be prayed. Not all prayers should be prayed. Let's look at principle number one. Notice in verse two, James is talking about their desires. What's causing these fights and these conflicts among you? Isn't it your desires? Notice James doesn't call them evil desires. He doesn't call them evil desires. He uses a generic word, epithumia, which simply means the desires that are within you. And you think about it. More often than not, your conflicts... I don't mean within this church, although that can be true, but the conflicts you have in your life isn't because people are necessarily trying to be evil towards you, are they? I mean, sometimes that's the case. But more often than not, our conflicts come from good people who want good things, but maybe want those good things too much, and they hold on to them too strongly. Let me give you an illustration. When I first became a pastor years ago, I was about 30 years old, and I had taken over a church that had been around since the 60s. And there was a man, um, let's just, uh, let me say his name was 
Well, his name meant lone wolf. It was a very odd name, so I looked it up what I mean, and it meant lone wolf, and it fit him perfectly. He was an old man in his 80s, used to wear a Russian hat and wore big coats because this was in the Midwest, and it was always cold all the time. So that's how he dressed. And his favorite line to me was, you're too young to know any of this, and then he would go on and say something. And you know, he's 80, I'm 30, I gave him that. That's not a problem. And I really like this older man because my wife said, that's going to be you when you're 80. You're, you're honorary, you always think you're right, and everyone should do it your way, that's you. So I always felt like, I love this guy because that's me. Well, we had a situation where this man, the lone wolf, was the head of our missions committee. He'd done it for 20 years, founding member of the church in the 60s, had been there ever since, knew everything about everyone and all things at the church. And here I was, a young pastor, calling the shots now and wanted to make a change. We had a family, came off the mission field, young missionary family, probably in their early 30s, had a heart for the gospel, had a heart for the church, and wanted to get involved. And there had been some problems on the mission committee, and I thought, Scott, would you help lead us into the next chapter and head up our missions committee? Scott would love to do it. He said, I'd be happy to do it. Problem is, the lone wolf was the head of the missions committee for two decades. Now, that's a good thing. But what he didn't know, and I don't know if he ever understood this after the fact, was that good thing was something he wanted way too much. It became his identity. It became his source of, uh, of meaningful contribution and his identity in the church. It became way more than an act of serving the people and God's kingdom. It became his source of meaning and significance. And when I started moving forward with bringing in Scott to take place, it was that time of year when we're bringing in new people for our committees, the lone wolf got so upset that he called for my resignation and started to bang the drum that the new pastor showed clear lack of spiritual discernment such that he should no longer be leading the church because he didn't want to lose his position as the head of the search committee. A good thing, wanting too much. Thankfully, the lone wolf had one of those beautiful women that just said, knock it off, you're being a fool, give it up. And so it resolved. My point simply is, he wanted a good thing. It's a good thing to lead a missions committee. It's a good thing to to promote missions out there, but he wanted it too much. And we have to see this all the time. I know a church wanting to hold on to theological convictions, a good thing, and then somehow it morphs into them not wanting to serve deviled eggs at any church meals. I, you can't make this stuff up, folks. And then it morphed into, we shouldn't call it potlucks because there's no such thing of luck in the Christian worldview. They should be pot blessings. It's like, are you kidding me? A good thing gripped on too tight goes sideways. Now, fortunately, this hasn't happened here, but I've seen it before where people wanting so much to be on the praise team or the church choir who can't sing worth beans get so mad when they're told, you can't sing very well, you can't be on the team, right? Friends, principle number one is not all desires should be pursued, right? If you've ever watched the early seasons of American Idol, you know that this is true. Not all desires ought to be pursued or encouraged. We need to submit them to Christ and subject them to wisdom. One of the greatest examples of this is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It records that God had given David peace on all sides. All his enemies were subjugated to him and there was peace everywhere in the land. And David had it in his heart to do an amazing thing. was to build the Lord a house. What a great, high, lofty desire. 
And yet the Lord told him, it's not for you. It's not for you, but I'll tell you what you will do. You'll be the person who sets up the next one for whom it will be my will for him to build a house. It's an amazing reality that just because God puts a desire in your heart doesn't mean that it's for you to fulfill. It might mean that you're the person to set up the next one and that your whole role is to make it easier for someone else. Friends, a personal desire is not a divine mandate. And we see it here in the book of James. These men and women had desires, and they were probably good desires, gripped on too tightly. And in some cases, even the best of desires can have the most disastrous results. We see it in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Something you want to do that's so good, you're willing to do something so wicked to accomplish it. Not all desires should be pursued. Principle number two, not all prayers should be prayed. I know that just seems sounds so radical coming from a pastor. And, and in our kind of culture where prayers is, is such a subjective personal thing, but how many times Scripture commands us and teaches us how we approach God and how we pray. Now, if the problem of the first group wasn't that, was that they weren't praying enough, you see that there in verse 2, verse 3. Um, so you fight and quarrel. You, you want these things you do not have because you do not ask. If their problem wasn't they weren't praying enough, the second problem is they're not praying correctly. Principle number two, not all prayers should be prayed. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Passions. You're asking but the way you're asking and why you're asking, it's not really about what God wants. It's about your own passions, people. In his book, The Mind on Fire, A Faith for the Skeptical and Indifferent, a man by the name of Blaise Pascal, he's one of the most brilliant minds that come out of France. He's a mathematician, a physicist, and a theologian. If you have any background in philosophy, you're familiar with these pensies. If you have any background in mathematics, you understand the Pascal triangle. It's used in binomial coefficients. This guy was a brilliant man. But he loved the Lord with all his heart. And he wrote this in a book, and he beautifully exemplifies principle number two. An example of God-honoring prayer and recognizing that so often our prayers are fueled by self rather than God. Now, it's a little bit lengthy, and you know, this is a little bit old-school English, the way they spoke. He was from France, so it was translated. So, so hang in there, okay? Here's what he writes. Yes, Lord, I confess that I valued health as a good, not because it is a means of serving you, but because with it, I could exercise less restraints and self-discipline to enjoy the things of this life and to better relish its foolish pleasures. Give me the grace to rectify my reason and conform my feelings to your ways. So may I account myself happy in affliction, so that while I am incapable of external actions, you may so purify my thoughts that they may no longer contradict your own. I pray neither for health nor sickness, life nor death. Rather, I pray that you will use my health, my sickness, my life, and my death for your glory, for my salvation, for the usefulness to your church and your saints among whom I hope to be numbered. You alone know what is right for me. You are the sovereign master. Do whatever pleases you. Give me or take away from me. Conform my will to yours and give me a humble and perfect submission. And in holy confidence, I may give myself utterly to you. May I receive what you give, sickness or health. May I equally adore whatever proceeds 
from you. Wow. Do we pray this way? Did James's people pray this way? Are we teaching our children, are we teaching the people around us to pray this way? Or are we teaching them that prayer is about getting God to conform what you want as opposed to prayer being me conforming my desires to what He wants? I think we know the answer to that. Principle 2 reminds us that prayer is a gift given to, from God to us to be used and given away for His glory and the good of others, not for our own purposes and means. Pascal was not divided in his heart. You can hear it in his prayer. He knew who calls the shots, and his prayer was that his prayers would conform and be aligned to God's will rather than his own, even if it meant affliction. Did you hear that line? May I take joy in affliction. Oh my gosh. Friends, when was the last time we prayed, may I actually take joy in affliction? so that you can continue to purge me of my tenacious grip on this world. But that was Pascal. Principle 2 reminds us that prayer is a gift to be given away. So James writes to them, you're at war on the outside because you've lost the war on the inside. You've lost the war on the inside because you've lost faith with God. What's it mean by that? You are driven not by the things of God and His desires and His plans and His purposes, but you are driven and desiring and driven by the the norms and priorities of our culture. You become a friend of the world, he says. And that friendship with the world has put you at enmity against God. And then he nails it in verse 4. He says, you're adulterers. Right? So, so wait, you think, well, I'm falling into this point, but what do you mean they're adulterers? Because that has to do with marriage and all of that. Well, think about it this way. If adultery is the affection and love that's rightly due to my spouse, that I give to someone else illegitimately, that's adultery. Then adultery here is the love and affection that's rightly due to the Lord. I illegitimately give to something else. And James nails it right on and says, you're an adulterer. You're doing the same thing as an unfaithful spouse. You are taking the affection and love due to your spouse and you're giving it away to something else. It's adultery. Maybe a little compromise here, a little compromise there, a step away from God here, a step towards the world there, little bit by little bit, over and over, again and again, ends up as adultery. And friends, If you know anything about these kinds of unfortunate topics, marital adultery like spiritual adultery doesn't just happen overnight, but it takes place in steps, in steps. And and, and by the way, any one of those steps, the process could be cut short if the person's willing. So what are those steps? And and James doesn't lay it out here, but Scripture does lay it out. So let's take a look at that, the the anatomy of uh, adultery. First of all, it starts, there they are, put them all in D so they're easy to remember. It starts with our feelings, right? The desires. James talks about this. It starts with our feelings. Friends, how many times have you heard in our culture, people just simply say, I don't feel like it. Right? I don't feel like doing this or I feel like doing that. We are driven entirely by how we feel. 
Now, don't get me wrong. And if you know me, you know I love feelings. I think feelings and emotions are awesome. They make life delicious. But here's the reality. Feelings and emotions make wonderful servants. But they are horrible masters. (laughs) Feelings are wonderful servants. But they make horrible masters. Let me ask you a question. And this is a very helpful question you think about. Are you a feelings-oriented person? Or are you an obedience-oriented person? Now, I know there's thousands of permutations between those two. It's not quite that simplistic. But at the end of the day, are you driven just because you feel like something? Or are you driven because it's the right thing to do regardless of how you might feel about it? Friends, I think most people in our culture, they're over here. And sometimes they don't even realize it. They're driven entirely by how they feel about something. And friends, that's where we see the first step is that when our feelings become our masters, when I desire something, an object or an act that I shouldn't, but it doesn't stop there. The next step, it morphs into, it goes from our feelings to our intellect. It goes from a desire to deception. We start to rationalize and justify the, the object or the act I want to do. Well, I know it's wrong, but I just feel like it. How many times have you heard some variation of that? What are you seeing? You're seeing the steps. So it starts with our desires. This is how I feel. Then it moves to our intellect. It becomes a, we start to rationalize and justify. It moves into deception. And then it moves into the next step. Our wills get involved. Or I use the word design. We start to plan out to get the very thing that we've rationalized that we actually want, even though we might know it's wrong. It starts in our feelings. It goes to our intellect, and it starts to go into our volition, our will. We start to say, this is what I'm going to design to do. And then it ends at the very last one, which is disobedience, our behavior. We finally embrace the object or act that we know was wrong, but we justified it in our minds. See, and that's what we see. We always see the behavior, but it didn't start with behavior. It started way back here as a desire and a feeling that I then justified and rationalized, that I then planned out and, and because I've, I've already justified it because I want it, and then I'm just going to do it. And James says, that, that's, that's how adultery happens, whether it's marital or it's spiritual. And by the way, the earlier in the process that you grip it and say, no, this is wrong, the be- better chance that you're not going to commit the, 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 the sin or the action. Likewise, the longer you linger in one of those, the greater the chance it's going to end up with, in adultery, marital or spiritual. You get what I'm getting at. The earlier in the process we stop it, the less likely it'll be that we'll do it. The longer we linger in the process, the more likely we will commit it. So friends, let me ask you this question this week. Have you been feeding spiritual faithfulness in your life or have you been feeding spiritual adultery? We're doing one or the other. I'm either feeding my faith or I'm feeding my idolatry. It's another word, adultery in the New Testament, idolatry in the Old Testament. They're used synonymously. Are you feeding your faith or are you feeding your idols? And it's all the little things. So when I get to a temptation, I'm jumping back to James chapter 1. This is why I go long and I'm not going to finish my points. I'm just going off the top of my head. So when I face temptations, like in James chapter 1, when he talks about it, and that moment is there, if I have been feeding my faith all week, guess what? There's a greater chance I'm going to overcome my temptation. But if I've been feeding my idolatry, if I've been feeding my desires, guess what's going to happen when I'm tempted? I have a greater chance I'm going to give in to it. So what are we doing? Are we feeding our faith or feeding our idolatry? 
And then finally, verse 5, James says this comment, basically he says, like a good husband, God is jealous for our affections. Let's look at verse 5. I know it's, it sounds, it's an odd verse and it confuses people. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? What he's saying is that God has made us, he's given to us his spirit, he's given us life, and he's jealous for that affection. And he yearns for that affection. You might say, well, God sounds petty. He sounds jealous. He sounds petty. Friends, we all know it. Any husband who's not jealous for his wife's affection has stopped being a husband. Jealousy in the context of marital fidelity is a virtue that we expect. And if it's lacking, we ask, what's wrong? And in the same way, God says, I love you. And I'm jealous for your affections for me because I will bless you. Any other affair will end in your destruction. That's what verse 5 is getting at. So James lays out, here's the accusation of a divided heart. Then he moves into the solution in verses 6 through 10. And I just love how James is calling for us to move towards God and promises that God will reciprocate. And how do we draw near? Verses 7 through 9, I mean, it's like rapid-fire succession. James just rattles off eight commands about drawing near to God. Look at verse 7. He starts with, submit to God, resist the devil. And and this could be what's called an appositive. So to do one is the same as to do the other. So if you, uh, an appositive is a word or a phrase, we do this all the time in English, that is grammatically and syntactically different, but they mean the same thing. So for example, um, I'll use my second illustration because that worked easier. Rick Rodever, handsome guy. Handsome guy, Rick Rodever. To say one is to refer to the other. You get what I'm saying? Right, or like 1968 Ford Mustang, beautiful car. One refers to the other. That's in a positive. So he's saying, submit to God, resist the devil. By submitting to God, you actually resist the devil. If you're resisting the devil, you are submitting to God. You get what he's saying? So he builds this up to do these very things, and then he gives these commands. But either way, notice the effect is the same. The devil will flee. He uses an interesting word, fugo, which we get the English word fugitive from. The devil will run and not look back. Notice the parallelism in verse 7 and 8. Resist the devil, move away from the devil, he moves away from you. You draw near to God, God draws near to you. They almost happen in corresponding relationship, one to the other. And then he has this litany, or just goes off on verse 8 and 9 and 10. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. He's referring to the Jewish idea that your hands are the actions of the lives, and the heart is the attitude. So he's saying, make make this thorough, make this complete in your actions and your attitude. Verse 9, this is heavy, be wretched, mourn and weep. He's saying, grieve over your sin. Don't be laughing at sin. Don't think this is a good idea. Do you see, do you feel the consequence of spiritual adultery, James is saying? Do you see the devastation that it wrecks? Grieve over it. Mourn over it. And then finally, verse 10, the kind of capstone, humble yourself. Friends, here's the good news here in verse 8. We can draw near to God because God has already drawn near to us. You need to hear this. This is not moral reform. We can draw near to God, because God has already come near to 
us. Look at Lamentations 3. It's going to be on the screen. Lamentations 3.57. The prophet writes this. You came near when I called you. You said, do not fear. Zechariah 1.3 writes this. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3.7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So time and time again, the prophets are saying the same message. You're not obeying. You're running away. You're adulterers. You're playing the harlot. But yes, come to me. Just come back and I will be there. So it's not just to James. It's, not, it's, it's to all of us. This has been the pattern of humanity, running away from God. And God says, you can come back because I'm already there. I'm drawing near to you. The ultimate example of God drawing near to us is in Christ, isn't it? That is the ultimate example of God drawing near to us, saying, come to me, I'm here. I've come more than halfway, I'm here. And so James lists off some practical ways we can do this. Submit, resist, humble yourself, cleanse, purify, repent. You go, ah, there's so much, I don't know where to begin. Just Pick one. Just pick one this week. And then maybe next week, pick another. And then another. And then next week, another. And tell somebody, this week, man, I'm going to try and purify my heart. I'm, I'm going to commit that I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to do the thing I used to do. I know there's so many other things I need to do, but I can't. I'm just going to pick one. And then maybe next week, I'm going to cleanse my hands. I'm going to actually change my actions. Maybe I'll put an a, a internet filter browser on. Maybe I'm going to have you hold me accountable for the way I speak about this person or in general. You start building things into your lives. It's a step-by-step process away. It's a step-by-step process back. And you say, but you might be saying, look, here's the problem. I fail. It's not that I don't know. It's not that I don't feel like I want to come back, but I fail all the time. You ever been there? I do. More importantly, God does. A couple weeks ago, I was reading through my Bible, just my daily Bible reading. I came across Psalm 73, 26. It's been my favorite verse ever since. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's leave that up there for a while. The psalmist is saying, my strength, my vitality, my ability, it will give out. My, my psychological willingness, my heart, it's going to fail. But his confidence is not in his ability. What is his confidence in? But God. Okay, that's a great Bible study, by the way. Trace every time that phrase comes up, it's amazing. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, oof. Our relationship with God, our standing with God, is not predicated on how awesome we are. It's predicated on how awesome Jesus is. That verse just nails it. My strength and my heart may fail. It will fail. But our hope is not in our own ability. Our hope is not in our performance. Our hope is that God is our strength and our portion forever. We will fail, but Jesus will not. We will be faithless. Jesus won't. And his faithfulness is extended to every one of us. Let me show you Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It's beautiful. Paul writes this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then here's one of my all-time favorite verses, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save a little bit. That's not the word he uses. Consequently, Jesus is able to save when he feels like it. That's not the word he uses. He's able to save to the uttermost, infinitely, to the nth degree, those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives. I love that. He's always living to do what? Make intercession for who? Us. We can draw near to God not because we figured it out, not because we're worthy, because He's already drawn near to us, and right now, He always lives. I've got to emphasize that. This is, this is what He does. This is what He likes to do. Intercede for you and I to draw near to God. So you fail, and you get discouraged. You know what you do? You look at the cross, and you go, there's grace for me there. Or maybe you're actually pretty good at this Christian thing. Maybe your morals have caught up, but now you're prideful, and you become arrogant. What do you do? You look at the cross, and you're reminded of the price of your sin. So whether you fail and are discouraged, or you succeed and get prideful, you look at the cross because it simultaneously encourages us and humbles us. Amazing. That doesn't build up my self-esteem to pride. It humbles me because of the price of my sin. But by looking at it simultaneously, I'm reminded of the price of his love and it encourages me. Either way, we look at the cross because it's at Jesus we look and not one another, not ourselves. It's already the end of the service. (laughs) See, I didn't get to it. Somehow we'll get to verse 11 and 12. We need to end here because we have communion together to celebrate. Uh, Communion, and it's a fitting thing. Really, communion is fitting for the entire book of James. You know why? Communion is a celebration, a a sign of our unity together, of we all take from one bread and one cup, but it's also a, a practice of our community together. Remember, we talked about Paul saying that before we take communion, we ought to make sure that things are right relationally. Why does he say that? Because as James says, God is one. And there's no shadow or variation of difference in him. He's he's, he's not inconsistent. He's one whole thing. So those who take communion can't be fractured, division, and divided. And so as we, in a little bit, our server's going to come up here. They're going to give you some time. You, You come up when you're ready. But make sure that not only between you and God things are right, but make sure that you and the people you're sitting with are right. Because we cannot say that we are one in Christ if we're divided. This is the very problem that the book of James is addressing. So we're going to come up here, and the servers are going to come up when I pray, and just do some business with God. I just want to let you know that as you come down, if the lines get too long, it might not be a problem in this service, feel free to go to another line so we can get through. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for James, and I guess I'm going to take it as your providential will that we just study the first 10 verses and not all 12. But Lord, we pray that we would be a reflection of you, that we would be one. Paul encourage us to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Father, we are living in a world that is coming apart at the seams. And Father, yet we can have unity because of Christ. Unity in community, even though in diversity, we have that in the gospel. Father, we pray that we would be a witness to a world that is falling apart, that we may have nothing in common but Jesus Christ 
And we realize that's all we need in common. So Father, as we come to your table, we are all the same sinners looking to a great Savior. And we thank you for that provision in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.